when you're thinking, your eyes do Felix the cat. Do you know this? No. Yeah, you, you do this. They go back and forth. Really slowly, just like a Felix the cat clock. You know what I've heard is, uh, and of course, I think I think like the, the 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 field of lie detection is probably about as bogus as like the field of <laughs> like uh, palmistry. Yeah, but I have heard people who do this say that um, when you uh, that you can tell if someone's lying because based on the right left brain split, when you are and I can't remember which is which, but when you are remembering something your eyes look one way and when you're inventing something they look, they look the other way uh so maybe, maybe that's what's happening when I think yeah you're remembering and lying the whole time Buckley Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets, a podcast about poetry and other intractable problems. This week, I have my very first guest, Tracy O'Day, associate editor of Smartish Pace and author of the brand new poetry collection, Restricted Movement, available now from Scotland Street Press. Tracy and I had a really uh, long, weird, interesting conversation. The first half is largely about her book. We talk about form. We talk about uh, writing personally, writing publicly, uh, separating the art from the artist, whether that can be done at all, whether uh, differences between poetry here and poetry in the UK, where Tracy lives. Uh, In the second half of the conversation, we get even further afield, uh, Tracy brought in a couple of articles that we got to read and uh, pull apart together. Uh, we talk about we talk about Billie Eilish, we talk about Ali Ali, uh, about women's uh, fashion, and we get political and personal and talk about how weird dads are. And uh, we also talk about whether or not influencers are artists, which is a pretty fucking horrifying idea, but it is a really interesting and fun conversation. The sound quality is slightly rougher than uh, would be ideal, uh, mostly for reasons that are um, mostly because I'm still learning how to fucking record a Zoom call, but uh, figured some things out and it will only be getting smoother from here. So as I said, the sound quality is slightly, slightly rougher than I'd like, but it's still pretty good. And with any luck, you will enjoy it. Let's go to that right now. I mean, he, he read the book and, and I talked to him and I mean, he's really proud of it and he like cried a bunch of times when he saw it and he just said I'm really sorry for making you worry that much about me and I mean that's that's really it like he he doesn't realize that he's doing these things that are like making his daughters insane with worry um because 
he just he's not in that world he thinks he's doing what he needs at the time or what's right for him at the time and he doesn't he doesn't really explore the consequences i mean do i think it's going to change anything necessarily that he read the book i don't know <laughs> i think if he could get on the outside and go score some drugs right now he probably would so i don't think it's really going to make that much of a difference uh he's still going to be the same rule-breaking character that he's always been that's i mean you you say um at a few points that there's almost to distinguish this from some sort of uh uh you know triumphant narrative of recovery or something you, you say you know i know he'll never be sober and uh, you know there's a line where you um you say i know i'm just uh i know i'm just buying weeks between ods um which i you know i yeah. feel that both um you, you talk explicitly again <laughs> like the paintings sort of break the fourth wall by presenting us with this very physical sense of his existence but then you also address the purpose of the poetry you're writing a number of times. I thought, you know, that line, the weeks between ODs, I thought of Frost's, uh, you're talking about poetry as a momentary state against confusion. It feels like the whole book could almost be one of these, either one of these episodes or one of these intervals between them that will then shortly begin again. Yes, the book is, is a cycle. You can read the book over and over again because that's the life I'm living pretty much. Right over and over again i mean i didn't both with the pandemic and with this crisis this ongoing crisis right yes exactly and i didn't want any sort of sewn up ending because there isn't one um and i i mean dad dying is is sort of the end of this and i don't want that ending so i'm really fine with living with this and I think the book is a gift and writing about it is a gift because it is how I process it. And it's, it is a hundred percent the thing that saved me. Yeah. So what happened was I was sending out my sort of poetry anthology, my collection of poems that I've been publishing since 2003 out to the world and Scotland street press wrote back and said, you know, we love this book. It's great. Um, we're sort of interested in doing some stuff that centers more around the pandemic right now. Uh, do you have anything else? And I said, oh, well, I've just started working on this book. I've started working on these poems about my dad. And also he's an artist. And they said, well, we like to, to publish um, illustrations along with our poetry. So I said, well, that would be awesome. I would love to do a collaboration with him, his poetry. I mean, his paintings and my poetry. And they said, okay, we want to publish that book. So then that's how this happened. They, I didn't, I hadn't written it yet. And they asked me to write this book and I did. And then the paintings, most of them are paintings of dads that I've already had. And then there were two new ones that he did specifically for the collection. Just to, to um, go ahead and get some of the book in your own voice in the, the listener's ears, would, would you mind starting with just the, the first title poem? Uh, so they can, yeah. I think it helps sort of in, in, provide a little bit of an introduction to some of this. Of course. No, it is. So the title poem, it's called Restricted Movement, the book, and the title poem. Uh, yeah, I think it really just sort of sets up everything. And we had had different titles at different points. And 
this is the one that I decided on with the publisher because I think it does set up that idea. Uh, and the reason it's called restricted movement is in Jersey, the order that kept people inside was called the Jersey restricted movement order. Um, and then the one in Maryland is the epigraph of the poem, which says all persons living in the state of Maryland are hereby ordered effective as of 8 p.m. on March 30th, 2020 to stay in their homes or places of residence. So that's the order of the governor of the state of Maryland, 2003-30-01. No order tells my dad what he can't do. You'd think he'd be the one most used to it, but prison didn't break him, only made him value freedom more. He disappears for days to prove the laws do not apply to him. Each time my heart sours, a fizz like blue-green algae film on stagnant pond. Neighbors ask if he's okay. He's fine, I lie, or maybe it's a prayer. I try to recollect what it was like before, what I worried about. Earlier still, my whole childhood he spent in jail. I slept just fine back then. I never dreamt of him. You'd think I'd be the one most used to it. So I remember years ago, you're telling me, um, I think it was about reading, uh, reading for a smarter space, but you said, you know, you, you read and write free verse and formal poetry, but you, when you see a poem written in meter, you just, you pause a little bit longer with it. And there's, the book is, I think, fittingly given the subject matter, it's, it's there is, there's a lot of blank verse, there's, you know, some there's, uh, strict forms, there's some like these that are sort of, this is a kind of a, a slightly uh, broken up sonnet that also has some kind of mirror elements to it and a little bit of rhyme, a, a lot of slant rhyme. Um, how, how did you, um, I don't know, I don't know if your philosophy on that has changed over the years, but my, my impression of you is that you are, I largely think of you as somebody who writes in form, but then, uh, I mean, some of this is just, is, you have a pro, at least one, you know, just block prose poem, and then plenty of, kind of free verse poems, you're very loose landed poems. Um, yep, yeah, I probably still, my philosophy is probably still exactly the same. Um, I, give more attention to poems in form when I'm reading them because I feel like the poet gave more attention to it when writing it. And that's a sort of lazy generalization, but it is also something that just resonates with me. So if I see something or read something that has rhythm, then I tend to, my ears perk up. Uh, there's just, I, I believe it is just because I read so much in iambic pentameter and I write in iambic pentameter or iambic anything. Like a, a lot of the letters are in very loose iambic meter with varying line lengths. Yeah. And it's just sort of what I live and breathe in. So if someone else is doing it, it, it just because it sort of, I don't know, plucks a chord from my poetic wheelhouse, I feel to mix metaphors, I feel like it's something familiar. Yeah. And also, I do, like I said before, there's a certain amount of effort. So if you're writing in form, then I know you've taken time on the poem. Yeah. 
And yeah. I'm not saying that people who write in blank verse don't take time. And obviously you said I, there's a prose poem in there and I don't feel that way at all, but I do think it's just sort of a signpost like, hey, here I am, I'm a poem. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, have a, I mean, I, honestly, I have a harder time knowing how to think about craft with free verse poems. Like they're free verse poems I love, but more often I find that they have to be either just a lightning bolt that amazes me and I can't account for it or, or they sort of fall flat. But, but with, so with, it, it seems like there's, I'm always a little bit skeptical of um, mimesis arguments with poetry, partly because I, I know at least from my own experience how much is, is stumbled upon rather than planned. But um, given the restricted movement that is in the content throughout the whole book, did that have any, did that come up at all in your consideration of form or was it, was it just that, you know, did you just have to set that aside and let it, let it happily line up when it did? I'm definitely, it was, I mean, my, it's, yeah, it's way, it's organic. It was, like you said, stumbled upon that kind of thing. When we were coming up with the title and when we decided on this the title, that definitely came into play, like, oh, right. Like, that makes sense that this would be the title because form is a sort of form, it, writing in form is a, an, the idea of restricted movement is there. There's so many ways that restricted movement plays throughout this book and with dad and the paintings and all the different places where he is and where we are. And it, yeah, it just, it really was just like, oh, right, this is the perfect title. Yeah. So, but as far as the form is concerned, I certainly wasn't thinking of that. I wanted to do the whole thing. It was at one point called Iambic Pandemic Diary. So it's this, I right. So it was very much, I knew I was going to be writing it in some sort of iambic form. And I knew that it was going to be about the pandemic and I knew that it was going to be about dad um, and the restricted movement aspect of it, again, just seemed completely organic. For, for a, a number of years, you were living in the British Virgin Islands. You're now living in the Channel Islands, which I did not even realize until <laughs> quite recently uh, existed. Um, but uh, you're you are you have been immersed in um, in British culture, broadly speaking, for for long enough that I know some of it is that the you know the conventional spelling in the book is British, but there are also Britishisms in the language that come up. It's not. I don't think there are any loos or lorries, but they're, um, you know, the, you, you say you nicked his diary or you, there's a, I think you use fancy uh, in the way that we might use a word like like or have a crush. So there are a couple little, they're not, and I would say this not because I think they're, they're particularly pronounced, but because along with then the, you know, the S's instead of the Z's and these kind of things, there is a, there's, there is a kind of another interesting tension between this life that you have far away and then this kind of childhood in Baltimore and this kind of Baltimore girl self that tugs at you you know both through your, your trips home and obviously through your relationship with your with your father you're the per first person who's pointed this out so let's let's talk about <laughs> this <laughs> okay except that people you know when I go home my friends definitely think that I have a British accent which I clearly do not have but I, I use Britishisms all the time. I'm also married to a, a Scottish man. And 
I am surrounded by English, English, Amer English, sorry, English, English speakers, as opposed to American, American English speakers. So, and I'm writing for a lot of magazines over here and I have to do the spellings with the O-U-R's and the I-Z-E's and all of that. Um, I didn't realize that I'd used fancy or nicked in a way that I, I wouldn't. It's just such a part of my vocabulary now. Um, I think I, I'm keen to discuss that, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. There's, there's, there's subtle Britishisms. Exactly. When I married Joanne, I, I, I started saying Appalachian instead of Appalachian, just because if I said Appalachian around her family, I would get a very, very harsh looks. So, yeah, understandable, you know, adjustments we make. I think I called a friend of mine a mummy the other day because she that's what she calls herself oh, like I would never yeah okay I would never right like not a mummy like uh, in a tomb but I would never call my mom mum but I would call my husband's mom his mum so I mean because it's a, it's spelled differently so it's actually a, it's a different word but my sister was like what is that word how are you, why are you saying mummy and um yeah, so that happens. I get, yeah, I'm sort. I am sort of this weird hybrid person at the moment. I, I am. My default position is that I radically separate the life from the artist. But um, I mean, this book it is they're absolutely inseparable. So I'll I'll shift quickly to a, a very fun poem uh, called "To the Activists." which I think okay. also articulated something I have not heard articulated, well, a couple of things I've not heard articulated before, but, but articulate a sentiment I think that is specific to this past year. Um, would you read that for us, please? Sure. To the activists. I see you on TV, be masked with megaphone. My meerkat ovaries perk up. I miss here streets as sheets. You want my body there. I mute a moan. Your genius deconstructs the media, deletes old norms, deprograms centuries of brainwashing. My genius is more intimate. I yearn to give you this, to bolster you, do what I can. Till now, I never understood the groupy thing. We move so deep, you skim flecked strands of DNA, so high, you scissor Neowise's tails, immense yet microscopic. After, I'm spent while you go slay. But I can't do you all. Instead, I'll broadcast, blare the amplifying energy. On stage, you sense a prick like a flea bite, a pulse like a sun flare. And Neowise, uh, which thank you for pronouncing because I did not know how to pronounce it, is a, the name of a comet um, that, that passed through the sky in 2020. Is that was? Yeah, it was the, during the pandemic. Or yeah, it was during it was it was a pan, it was the pandemic comet. Pandemic comet. Um, and and the sentence in case anyone missed it was you scissor Neowise's tails, um, which is I had to restart this poem halfway into starting it to understand the argument it was making. It's. Um, uh, it is very much reminiscent of Dunn, I think, John, which and I, I don't know how it was just delivered, but <laughs> please bite in the last line. I couldn't help but think of 
Dunn's, you know, wild sort of sexual metaphysical conceits that include the uh, the solar system as well as, you know, a tiny drop of blood, um, or in this case, flex of, flex strands of DNA. Uh, but this is, would you, would you just say a word about, about the, the response to the public moment, at least, that, that led into this poem? Sure. Um, I, I actually have a, a very good friend who is doing amazing things for uh, Black Lives Matter movement, et cetera, by publishing books, uh, well, by the Black Lives Matter activists and a lot of that's sort of his his thing is to publish voices that have been previously unheard or not amplified and there's this idea that he is sort of he was the first person i sort of thought of and then i thought of all the other activists like look at what you're doing like you are you're literally changing policies you are changing the way that that people think and then it wasn't just activists for black lives matter Black Lives Matter movement, but obviously much more the non-binary movement and all of this sort of throwing over the systems that are in place. So everyone who is actually taking the time to overthrow these systems and who is actually getting it done and maybe making people think differently than they've ever thought before and really getting it out there publicly. So I'm not one of those people. Like I am not an activist and I am not, not in that way. I'm not out there changing policies or necessarily reprogramming people's brains. And so the poem was me wondering, well, what could I do? And I can do two things really well. And this was once a line in the poem, I can fuck and I can write. And that's, a, it's a very boasty sort of MC thing to say. Um, but I'm just sort of like, these are my two gifts. And how could I use them to bolster these movements? And that's where this poem came from. My genius is more intimate is a line I definitely, that was, that was the line I had to stop and start the poem again on. Um, if I were cleverer, I would have more to say about why it, it's uh, fitting that this is a sonnet. But I, I can, I'll just say that I think it is. Well, it's a sonnet because it's a love poem. I mean, it is. Yeah, poem. No, yeah. a, simply, that's that's a simple enough that's a simple enough explanation. Yeah. It is a love poem. Yeah, I think part. I'm interested in like the uh, the um, the 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 problem consolation imbalance of uh, a sonnet. So maybe that's part of what I I see there. That there's a. It's not clear in this case. It's not broken up into the octave and the sesta, but there's like a, a sense of a like an eight lines worth of need and six lines worth of response, you know, that's yep. possible, that's accessible. Throughout the book, you have uh, poems all there. They're not it's the, the font or the, the, um, the type, the topography doesn't even set them apart as titles, but they all begin Dear Dad. Um, and this is it's a series of poems that all begin Dear Dad throughout the book. Uh, and it's, I think it's the one that ends the book as well. Um, but in this, in one of them, oh, 47, there it is. That one's better than this one. Uh, one of the Dear Dad poems, you say, so as I pass him in the driveway, roll down windows to say hello, and he asks if you're okay, tears come. That, you know, the, the, the entire independent clause occurs in the last two words uh, in a way that just felt very, that, that is a line that felt wonderfully mimetic. 
was you're holding back the tears and they 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 were that as tells us that they're coming throughout the whole sentence but they only arrive at the very end if you were to present a a, a poem or a portion of it for us that was only as uncomfortable as you wished to to get what what would that be i mean i want to i want to let you give a kind of a, a a final treatment of it without my intrusive questions well i actually think that poem that you just pointed out this dear dad poem uh on the one on page 47 which is i think the shortest dear dad because most of the dear dads are longer letters to dad i mean this one is certainly it gives you a lot of, it gives you other characters. So it's like addressing my mom and uh, addressing my stepdad. So there's this whole weird relationship obviously between them and also addressing the writing of the book. So I think this is a really poignant one and I'm happy to read this one. And yeah, it's uncomfortable for me to read. I've never read this out loud before. Um, what you said earlier about, I guess, sort of death of the author, I feel exactly the same. I mean, I don't, I mean, in, in the UK, it's different. So they are very much interested in looking at a writer's life biographically in order to address the work. And I mean, I think in the States, we do not subscribe to that at all. And I think that comes from death of the author, which was what, 60s? And ever since then, English studies in the U.S. has said you have to take the art separate from the from the artist. But in the U.K., especially, well, I was teaching secondary school for a little while over here, which is high school. Um, they are very interested in what the what the what was happening in the author's life at the time of the piece of art that might be created, as well as if the author has said anything about the creation, which I don't trust ever, um, no, never. So it was, I, it was at one point I was teaching a poem for their GCSEs, which is sort of like their high school exams. And there was one of the poets that was being taught, this is the, this is the national school exam. So all the English students are take, taking the same exam. The poet who was featured on the exam is still alive and she had a website where she would answer students questions about her poems that they could then you know use for their for answering their their exam papers and i was like what <laughs> you can't ever do that there is no right or wrong answer about a poem and you can't say well the poet said this blah 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 um so why, yes why would you want to give no oh, i know of course of course but I mean, if someone asks me about this book, right. I'm going to give them an answer sure. that I that I think comes from my own life, blah, blah, blah. But that doesn't mean that someone can't read to the activists and completely get a different experience than, than what I wrote. I do sometimes think that this book is a memoir more than a book of poetry. And that makes it complicated. And it's certainly not a book that I would ever set out to write as if I was thinking like oh what is my poetry going to be like I wouldn't think this was the book that's going to happen but this is the book that did happen um and it's super duper personal and oftentimes painful and 
quite revealing. Um, and I asked everyone in it if they were okay with being in it, because I think sometimes you don't think you would ever have to do that with a book of poetry. Like you would never think you would have to ask permission of the people in it if it was okay. But I did. I'm not dad. I mean, dad knew I was writing it sort of all along. So I, I don't think I ever really act, actually asked his permission. <laughs> um, but she's horrible. Um, but my sister and my mom and some of the friends who are sort of name dropped, just random friends who appear in the book. You know, I had to ask them, is it okay if I'm, I'm sort of telling your story while telling mine? Which you just don't think is something you have to do. But anyway, I'll read this poem. Dear Dad, Mom says she's jealous that you're getting a book she's not. I get her point. She raised us on her own. I never knew you growing up. Sometimes I'd walk past homeless men and fells and ask if they were you. She doesn't know that not having to write about her is the greatest compliment. It means that she's the opposite of stress, what I escape to, not from. I write the things my brain can't handle on its own. I get them down on paper, see them on the page, then wrestle them into a form I can control or I get overwhelmed. My stepdad's never hidden his disdain for you for choosing drugs over your wife and kids. He married mom when we were eight and 11 and knew you never tried to see us our whole lives until you sobered up and we grew up. He didn't want you at my wedding at their house, but had to let you come. So as I pass him in the driveway, roll down windows to say hello, and he asks if you're okay, tears come. You have no clue how much it kills me, keeping you alive. Yeah, that, that last line was another one that I, I caught on in a different book. It's the kind of line that would appear in a poem that was addressing someone who was dead. Right, I mean, the poem, you know, uh, so long as men have men can breathe and eyes can see, so long lives this and this. Yes. Be. But this is a poem. This is a, th this book seems both to be keeping your father alive in in verse and essence, but also it's it's literally an account of keeping him alive day to day. Yes. Um, yeah, the, you know, the, this poem in particular. Uh, made me think of the the prodigal son story but from the perspective of the father who has to you know whose who's other son who has been the good son says like well where the fuck is my fatted calf where's my feast you know, and, <laughs> where's my book and i've long sympathized with that son saying like well shit like what you know but then it's, i also it, this made me sympathize with the father it's like well i'm i'm doing my best here i'm trying to make it you know, like i'm happy he's alive i'm happy he's back and yeah sure you're of course you're great i'm you're great and i never have to worry about you and oh that's, that's that's a really funny comparison so my mom is the is the good son and my dad is this prodigal son wow that's a little bit to unpack well, it's, I mean, it also, it's like the prodigal son if he was the prodigal son every week. Yes. So it's not, it's not like the one big homecoming. You just, you know, do we have another fatted calf to kill? Do we, yeah. <laughs> um, and that, I mean, that is, I think, as with your, the portrait of your father, who's 
who's a he's sort of like a Shakespeare. I mean, you have he, the poem Shakespeare Street. He was born on Shakespeare Street. He is a little bit of like a Shakespearean character in that he's it's I mean, very it's a very sad figure, but also uh, oddly lighthearted and very funny and very kind of mischievous. Um, and the the book itself is both just brutally depressing at times and also really funny. I mean, as you know, it's as evidenced by the the activist poem, but as well as by plenty of the poems about your dad, about his mischief at, at all of the different ages that he's, that he's lived. Um, yeah, I mean, I can, I think Lear is one of the funniest Shakespearean plays, and I think people disagree with me on that, but it is. It's hilarious. There's so much humor in Lear. It's horribly dark, but it's also... Exactly. It's And I could see Dad definitely as this Lear character, sort of losing his mind and um, loving his daughters, but not, well, not loving them to death yet. So he's, a little, he's sort of like Lear and Lear's Fool. Yes. Uh, well, I, oh, I mean, Lear's Fool is a part of Lear, right? It's just... It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I very I hope people will go will go read Restricted Movement. Um, should we give a disclaimer to secondary school kids that they should that they should not rely on your account here to give them answers for their? Yes, yes, we need to definitely say that if yeah. if this is ever taught um, at GCSE or A level, please do not use anything I said as the definitive answer for the exam. Yeah, Thank you. When we, when we talked about this, this interview um, uh, a little while ago, um, my my annoying assignment to you was that I, I wanted to find a an article or essay or, or you know subject uh, cultural subject of some kind that you had sort of mixed critical feelings about, and um, and you brought up a the um, the Billie Eilish British Vogue cover photo shoot and story and then of course there was this this big reaction to it um and i don't know how much context people need uh i i knew of billy eilish because my, my sister was a fan and she introduced me to some of her music which i think, which I think is very very well done I mean, she's extremely talented uh, uh it's hard not for me not to think of her as a just a child which is insanely young um yes not, <clears throat> 19 now but was something like 14 when she first started you know putting this music out my wife of course had I knew nothing but her name so I should say like she, she uh released her first record in 2019 when she was 17 uh she and her older brother who is himself still a kid he's just a couple years older um they write and produce all of this in, the, in their bedroom and they've been doing this since they were little kids and it's uh this record she put out uh, when we all fall asleep where do we go was a, an enormous enormous hit she won a number of grammys for it and it was this this huge cultural and critical sensation uh um i do know that like uh it, it is there does seem to be something of a generational divide my my dad and his wife saw her on saturday night live and and just it was like a just a 
brick wall. It could have, the, the TV could have just gone to like white noise for three minutes and they, their response would have been the same. Uh, whereas, you know, the young, young kids are really obsessed with it. I, 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 when I listen to the music, I can tell it's definitely not for me, <laughs> but it is, but it's not, this is not nothing. This is, there's something impressive happening here. Um, I look for one thing. I just like that she she rhymes well. She's a she's a, she's a rhymes like a rapper. Um, she's a lot of feminine rhyme and a lot of uh, uh, cocky sneering, which I appreciate. Um, uh, but so then she she part of her whole um, a, appeal, I guess. And I can read from um, this is the New York Times uh, piece that came out right before her her record. Um, uh, her first record came out. Um, so she collected some 15 million followers on Instagram. Among these legions, among those legions, many had already started to adopt the music's, the musician's striking visual aesthetic. And this is part of what the story we're going to talk about is, is focused on. Her striking visual aesthetic, uh, which this um, journalist describes, I think, accurately as performatively dead eyes, bored at best, hair dyed in shades of electric blue and pale purple, an all baggy anti-silhouette, a collective middle finger to the strictures of teen pop sex appeal. So that that is a, a, a would seem to be a big part of her, I, I, my, I'm inclined to say shtick, but I think that, you know, people would say brand or her, her look was that she wore very big baggy kind of a, often very colorful, but uh, a, almost asexual, clothes and this is this is part of her deal um and then in advance of this new record that is coming out soon she appeared in um british vogue uh it was just on the cover and there was a photo shoot that accompanied it and in this she has uh very blonde hair and uh wears very form-fitting corsets and uh, it's so it's it's, uh, it's it's very I would say very substantial formal old fashioned looking underwear, but it's it is um, it's a very different from her previous look, and there has been a a response of many different um, flavors to this. Um, so I just want to give people some background. Tell, tell me sort of your thoughts coming into this. Sure. Will you ask something that I was not sort of not sure about conflicted about something in and I mean you said culture and I guess I just sort of it was something in pop culture that I wanted to think more about uh and you are giving me a platform to do that I am a fan I'm, I'm a casual fan of Billie Eilish I'm not someone who necessarily seeks her out all the time and she is you know, she's a younger, gener much younger generation. She's much cooler than most of the people I listen to. And so, but I, I love what you said about her. I love that she is, she writes her own music. She writes her music with her brother. She sort of created this art in a vacuum kind of thing, which I think is really cool. Laura did a similar thing a couple of years ago. And I admire these artists who sort of, come out of their bedrooms in a way but you can tell that that they've really they're dedicated and committed to what they're creating and I love that about her I have also always loved about her that she rejects the 
sexualization of being a teen pop icon. So I think that is when we had artists like Britney in the 90s, when Madonna was really young, we've always seen this. this. So as soon as you come out as this teen pop star, you are sexualized or you are flaunting your sexuality or whether you own it or whether someone else puts it on you. There is this idea that in order to sell records, you have to sell sex. And I think that is something that Billie Eilish has avoided. Yes, she was 17 when her first album came out. But I mean, Britney was really young when her first album came out as well. And I don't think she had, she, she used her sexuality to sell albums. And Billie Eilish hasn't done that. And I've seen, I mean, my response has been awesome. I love it. Her voice is amazing. She's really cool. She dresses in baggy clothes. She's got funky hair and really cool nails. Um, I think, and I was just, and she's obviously gorgeous and not using it to sell records. So I was, I was loving that vibe. And then, and I had friends who would, who would watch the Grammys and, and comment on the Grammys, just like, wow, like, look at all these other women who are obviously, you know, I mean, we can't avoid the fact that we live in a patriarchal society. So here are all these women who are sort of dressed to pander to the patriarchy. And then here's Billie Eilish, who is not, and she's doing her own thing. And I'm sure that it's so much more complicated than that. But I mean, I guess that's sort of a message that she's sending out to her fans is I'm going to dress this way. Then this Vogue cover came out. And so my first instinct was crap. Like she is now conforming to this idea that pop stars need to look sexy and they need to sell sex. And it's not, it's clearly not that simple. This is, she says in the article that she hid her body because she felt insecure about her body. And I mean, that is also another problem. Like that's, a, that has to do with body positivity and, and that's a huge issue as well. And the media obviously makes women feel that they need to look a certain way. And then she came out with this, you know, wearing this very, like you said, old fashioned lingerie, lots of corsets, very structured, very pinup style lingerie. Um, which I, so this is where the, this is where my brain isn't, I don't, I don't think I need to feel one way or the other about this. And I, I have complicated feelings about this. She's blonde all of a sudden. So it's sort of like, she's living up to this sort of Marilyn Monroe, Scarlett Johansson ideal. She looks a lot like Scarlett Johansson. So this sort of, she's turning into this she's now this blonde bombshell and which is sort of, is, I mean, the ultimate female American look, Pam Anderson, Marilyn Monroe. Um, and that I, I can see how in one way she was very much saying like, she felt great. She felt great about her body. She felt like she was able to show it off and she was very happy about that. And at the same time, she 
is still 19 years old and she is still now showing images of her body in a way that is, you know, sexualizing her because she is wearing undergarments and that, so that's where I'm just, I, yeah. And so and two, I guess two qualifications to the just for the background is that one is that she made a point and they, they talk in the article extensively that this is she she's saying this is her idea that she wanted to do this, this is sort of a look she had played with in private and was excited to do this uh, as a thing. The other thing it's just my my small qualification that I still find it very funny because the one the one element of her look is it has not changed at all is the performatively dead eyes. Dead eyes, dead she's, eyes. She's this classic 50s, you know, bombshell uh, bottle blonde cover model with just absolute fuck you eyes. <laughs> yeah. It is, you know, it it's a yeah, it's a straight, it's a it's a striking <laughs> look. Um then there was this this article in the New York Times um, uh, uh, on May fourth. Uh, this is Ruth Laferla, um, and it ends. Uh, she's quote uh, so Laferla quotes this um, tweet from a a, a fan uh, asking, you know, why why this change? Um, so this is Laferla at the end of this article. That question was bound to arise. In an earlier phase of her career, Ms. Eilish could claim the distinction of being a one-off. Stylish, she insisted, had no place in her life. I could easily just be like, you know, you're going to pick my clothes. So this is, she's quoting Eilish from an earlier essay or article in which she says, you know, I, I could let other people do all these different things and choose all these different elements of my career, but I'm not that kind of person and I'm not that kind of artist. This is back to Laferla. Yet for Vogue, she placed her trust and vaunted image entirely in a team one that, as it happens, was led by Dena Giannini, the magazine's style director, with input from top-rung designers, including Alessandro Michele of Gucci. Her transformation would seem to suggest that Ms. Eilish is content these days to abandon her formerly maverick stance in favor of a fetish-tinctured bombshell look that seems hackneyed, that seemed hackneyed when Madonna was a girl. If her reinvention poses a risk, it is that of becoming just another cliche for a variety of reasons, I'm much more interested in your thought on all of this. I will say that, that that was the one piece to which I had an immediate and fairly one-dimensional response, which was, what a shitty, like, like why shit on a 19-year-old's clothing? Like, Jesus Christ, let her wear what she wants to wear. Like, wh like why do you need to write an article, you know, telling her that she's boring because of you? Like, she's just fucking, stop, don't, it just felt like bullying. No, I agree. I mean, the so when Billy sort of leaked her transformation on Instagram, um, I guess she she basically broke Instagram. You know, she um she got she was the first person to get a billion likes or something within thirty seconds. I mean, it's something outrageous. I I totally agree with what you're saying. This article felt. I mean, it just I don't feel like she addressed anything, and she just she didn't. It was very dismissive. And, and of her, I mean, it's like it, it points the finger at, at Eilish. Like, yeah. What, like, if you want to take Vogue to task, maybe that's an article to write. 
like yes this 19 year old kid i mean again i can't i can't yes. it's part of like dad brain but like i can't help thinking of her as like jesus she's a she's like a very talented very special little girl just stop fucking <laughs> <her at home." laughs> yeah no i agree what felt easy to me initially was to say well uh her music is one thing photo shoots you do all that other stuff whatever i don't really care and then something joanna told me made me realize that there's probably an element i'm missing and this was and i realized i'm late to this game because you and my wife are both on instagram um and i just know of it and know about it but uh i had not realized until like very recently <laughs> that there was such a thing as an influencer qua influencer that I, I understood that like there were famous people artists or various kinds of celebrities who also were on instagram or various other platforms kind of selling stuff selling a look selling an image and then they, and then sponsors would would get involved in order to in order to move their products i had not realized that there were people who just did the the sponsorship influencer part with no other career like who, they're not also musicians they're not also actors or even like models they're just they their job is selling a look and a lifestyle and then they get sponsorship within that but like by virtue of the existence of influencers there are necessarily there is such a thing and this is where my mind broke there is such a thing as an aspiring influencer <laughs> right like just you have like you have right because you have like you have struggling artists so presumably you have struggling would-be influencers trying to influence and that's when i started to think well i know that all of this is very stupid and boring to me but you know just 20 years ago you could make a very serious argument about why comic books were not art or like yes he was not art even though the, by the time the sopranos were coming around that was but i think like I don't want this to be art, but part of me feels like maybe this is the emergence of a an art form, like a life, <laughs> lifestyle as art form. Again, like performance art is, you know, people, and certainly like there's autobiographical art, there's confessional art. Is this the, I want us to separate the art from the artist, but it may be that it's not quite fair for me to dismiss its, dismiss it as a thing. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. What is that? What do you What do you make of it? You You are also though. Um, I think you are both more. You are mo both more newfangled and more old fashioned than I am in certain in certain respects. So, <laughs> right? Wait, I, I want to know how I'm more old fashioned. I mean, I'm older, but <laughs> oh no! I, well, I, I mean, I partly I think that you are. Um, I think it may be that you are as old-fashioned as I am when it comes to craft or tradition in some ways, but you are uh, more, you are a more confident person. <laughs> so yeah, so is, is a, should, need we worry about uh, influencing as art or will we just, will we just uh, hopefully die before that? Uh, was there ever a worry that it was going to be an art? So I, I've always thought that it was very commercially driven, but you're saying, I guess, because it's on Instagram, which is, in some, well, I mean, I think I've never thought of influencing as an art form, but now you're making me think of it as an art form. Um, TV was just was just a vehicle for selling commercials, right? I mean, yeah, 
True. Just like like a, an entertaining interlude between commercials. And right. that's part of why it sucked so much, but it developed. That's wow. That's, that's what I'm wondering. You know? I totally see what you're saying. Um, and now you've upset me. I was hoping you could reassure me. Well, I can't. You're probably right. What's the art form? Creating a brand? A brand? Like, yeah, I mean, I guess. Brand. Ooh. Yeah. I'm interested. I'm interested. And, you know, like, one could imagine a. Okay, so, like, what? Well, like, imagine, like, the HBO of influencers where you have, like, you have a larger studio effectively says like, all right, you're not going to have sponsorship. You're not going to like sell, you know, objects in your, in your output. You're just going to have your, your vision for your brand, for your lifestyle, for whatever however you, and you're just going to, you're just going to, you know, make that. And then that we will house that within our larger subscription service. So that it'll be even like, it'll be like the purer, more artistic part, you know, versus like, you know, network influencers where it's like, it's, a, you know, every 30 seconds is like, you can also buy this new phone, what, you know, <laughs> that's my, that's kind of what I imagine. Because <laughs> yeah. the biggest influencers that I've come across were sort of travel lifestyle, people who traveled and would take these phenomenal photos of just a moment on their holiday or on their vacation. And that, I think that's the first time I ever came across sort of this idea of that someone was an influencer as a, as a, their occupation. I was reading an article in American Airlines magazine because I was on a plane as usual. And there was a photo that everyone was just like, and then that photo happened. And of course I had never seen this photo, but it was some photo that went viral on Instagram and it was a pool in this little hotel and the hotel then ended up getting more business than they've ever had probably in the total of time that they've existed. And it was just because of this one photo and, and I sort of thought that's a really cool photo. And I guess I sort of thought of that person as being a photographer, right? So they're an influencer. They get free hotel stays everywhere they go. They get free restaurants, blah, blah, blah. Um, they must get paid by likes and whatever else. But it's getting, like photography is a necessary but not sufficient part of it, right? Because if it were just a beautiful picture of a pool, but there were no location attached to it, or if it were not, if it didn't have to do with an ongoing aesthetic or vision or or lifestyle, or I keep thinking <laughs> to me it's all shtick. But like it, you know, it's, there's uh, the idea is like somebody lives this way, or like I want to live that way, or I want to. I want to have yes. a, a vacation in the key of X, you know. Yes. But that's part of it. And and presumably then your personal conduct and your self-image and your presentation and like your interactions with people out in the world, that all becomes part of it too. There's a Black Mirror episode about this. Have you watched Black Mirror? I have. What's the Black Mirror episode? The So the one with um Ron Howard's daughter where she is oh, the five stars yeah 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 all the likes all the likes all the likes so if you remember the girl that she's supposed to be in the wedding her like her, her hot friend yeah. is is this influence influencer person like 
right. uh, basically saying like, oh, you know, it it shows up well if I invite you, the sort of less cool friend, to be a part of my wedding. You know, it gives me a better image and blah blah blah. And that whole idea, her her fiance is is clearly not into her and possibly homosexual. And this whole idea that it's all superficial, it's taken it to the extreme where your inf- what you are on screen then actually dictates what you do in life. Because you are selling this lifestyle, you are selling your brand, your own personal brand. But I guess the extreme of it there was that they were, it was, I mean, everything you did got likes or dislikes and it was, you couldn't turn it off. Yeah, I'm, I'm increasingly convinced that that is a, that's going to be a thing with with different varieties of, I mean, I think as with like movies are definitely art, but they're definitely big schlocky dumb movies that exist only to like sell action figures. Like that, that's, you know, and then there's uh, Tarkovsky, you know, the, you know, Mar- Marina Abramovich is a, is a performance artist who's like, her life is inextricable from her work in a slightly different way that her body had to be part of it. I mean, people can recreate it, but it's the same, the same, um, the same inescapable quality that her life has when she's physically in an installation that she has to remain in. That would just be all the time. Ish. I mean, the difference there is that she is, when she's performing with someone, she is giving she is giving a performance and she is giving them really a part of her like she is i feel like she is so engaged in her performance that there is some sort of artistic currency sort of being exchanged there between the artist and the viewer i totally i totally agree but i would just say that that's because she's a good performance artist which, okay. I mean, like, there are shitty performance artists for whom that's not true, but they are also like naked and sitting on a block of ice or whatever. You know, I think like right. the 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 degree to which there's that genuine engagement, that genuine, there is something. I think art is both ex- extremely selfish and extremely selfless when it is at its its best. Um, and there, I think that 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 engagement and that gift is really there, but it's there in the good work. And there probably will be critically acclaimed influencing work at some point. And that makes my stomach turn a little bit. <laughs> but to, okay, so to, 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 to pivot to a, at least a slightly more heartwarming example of lifestyle as something like art. Um, you, you also uh, um, brought up this uh, Ali Ali Piece. Do you know how to say their name? No. Name? Uh, yeah. Well, so it's it's O L O L L Y E L E Y, and this is the uh, the the first the first non-binary cover model for L, and then um, this is a uh, so this this is a, this is an article that's as told to Lada Jeffs, which I read based on the. The, um, the the texture of the prose as being, you know, like um, capably massaged by a professional writer, but it's a it's sort of spoken in the voice of Ali Ali, who is um, I forget, like I think quite quite young, you know, in the in the neighborhood of like Billie Eilish's age. Yeah. 
Um, so, so tell me what, why you, uh, why you uh, pulled this article. The, just the idea of this sort of ultra feminine stereotype cover of Billie Eilish, blonde bombshell versus Ellie's cover, which was sort of the opposite of that. So the idea of holding up these, the oversight, like I said earlier, over-sexualized blonde uh, teen pop star image, and then compared to a non-binary cover girl. It just, it was just sort of interesting to me, again, to like go into this space where nothing in my mind is um, clear. It's just sort of this, this messy place where things are changing and the ways, the way that we think about things are changing. And I thought that this cover was a really cool contrast to the Billy. I mean, obviously they're two completely different people and blah, blah, blah. Um, but for the sake of the imagery, yeah. I thought it was a very strong contrast between the two covers. Uh, do, you, do you respond to it at all? I mean, also part, part of my response is thinking about raising two little girls is uh, maybe we hope that, you know, whatever, however my daughters grow up, that, that, that the burden doesn't feel exactly like that in that way for them. Um, right. But I mean, they will obviously always have this pressure to to look a certain way. I mean, oh, I don't know, it's going away or is it, I don't know, is it getting worse? Sometimes I feel like because of our influencer friends, uh, a lot of it yeah. is getting worse. I mean, there are filters where everyone is, looks a certain way and it's sort of like everything is coming to a head at once. So you have these lots of plastic surgery and women trying to, everyone trying to look alike in this sort of feminine ideal, Kim Kardashian on the one end, Scarlett Johansson on the other end, I guess, sort of women. And then you have the emergence of non-binary individuals who are expressing themselves by saying, you know what? I'm not playing this game. Like I don't, I don't fit into these boxes that you're trying to put me into. And instead I want, I'm just going to be me, the purest expression of myself in whatever form that may take. And I think all of this coming out at once, it's not, I know it's not new, it's nothing new, but it's, there's such a spotlight on all of it that it's going to either, I think in some ways it's going to be amazing for kids who are going to finally feel like there are supportive places for them to go and there are other people who they can see reflected back as themselves. Um, but I also think on the other hand, we're still getting this crazy need for women to look a certain way and I mean, Instagram is there to sell products and it's, what is it selling more than anything? Beauty products, weight loss products, and fashion. I mean, those are the, the three big things that it's selling. I think insofar as, as like peers have always been a, uh, a, an intense influence, it's, there's a whole new set of tools that now exist. 
Um, part of that is I think they'll be able to, as you said, like you can find people who are like you in a way that that we couldn't. Um, yeah. Could, we had to go to college or what's so worse, you know, or like weird places downtown before we could meet those people, you know. Um, uh, they can find them right, right away, right? I mean, like I, I like did plays with like grownups when I was a kid and I was like, that was how I heard my song. It was like, nakedly it was also like how i heard a lot of words for the first time a lot it's like there's plenty of things that like yeah you know they will be able to find stuff online for good and ill but i think that you know the the to the extent to which like mean girls create peer pressure like they have a fucking megaphone like they never had before yes i will say i'll say that, that to in full disclosure the, the other the other like slight uh reflexive response i had as a as a dad it's like oh so, so many tattoos so young do what you like with your body but like, part of me is like uh, what about why don't you color your hair like you know like what <laughs> i thought i was always like Dude, let's let's give you a mohawk let's just hold off some tattoos a little just a, you know but yeah that's I, I can't you are such a dad i am like you know the things that, that in these uh, various various articles that that we we missed or that we um, or that I, I'll just say that I missed that you didn't, or, you know, I'm sure we're missing plenty, but. Oh yeah, I'm sure we're missing. I mean, there's, yes. I mean, this is our very limited view on this and we're not Billie Eilish aficionados. Um, what I do want to say is when you were talking about influencers earlier, and I mentioned the fact that, you know, Billie Eilish basically broke Instagram mm -hmm. with all of her likes we can't actually forget the fact that that is part of her career. So she is an artist, 100%, and I know we've touched on it, but she is also an influencer. She has created this image on social media, and maybe that's where we'll see this. I mean, I know you're talking about influencer as an artist, as its own art form. But I do think that is a place where we see it. So she has definitely mastered this art form on top of the fact that she is a super gifted musician. But there's nothing to say that she can't be both things. And if it is an art form, and if it isn't emerging as an art form, then, I mean, who better to sort of lead the way is this sort of, she can be renaissance in the sense of a renaissance man in that she is multi-talented and over several different platforms or genres so perhaps she's going to be the maybe she legitimizes influencing in some way to make it palatable for us as an art form i'm really really glad that i got to uh to get you to come talk a little bit and i'm also excited because as you said you your other poems which you you, you know you, you were talking about sending around when you first came into contact with scotland street press this collection at some point will see the light of day and we can yeah so they were pretty much going to be released around the same exact time okay. uh then scotland street press wanted to put restricted movement forward um, for the forward prize and there's a first collection like a debut collection prize uh, it's one of the uk poetry prizes so i had to make sure that this collection was first so i sort of had to tell 
the other collection, which is coming out in the States, to hold off on publication until we knew for sure when this was being published. So now this is officially being published June 12th. And then I think Waving, which is the title of sort of my anthology of stuff that I've been publishing for the past 17 years, that is coming out in July. Right. Okay. So, uh, so there will be time by then for us to discuss Billie Eilish's third look. Um, <laughs> well, that was our show. Um, you can uh, find more about Tracy at tracyoday.com all one word, T-R-A-C-I-O-D-E-A.com. You can also follow her at Tracy O'Day on Twitter and Instagram. Restricted Movement is available now for purchase from Scotland Street Press. Waving will be coming soon. Um, I, you know, there will be a link to uh, Restricted Movement, Restricted Movement right uh when this show drops. If you liked what you heard, please do uh, take a moment to subscribe to Slee Ricketts, uh, rate the show, review the show, or just recommend it to somebody you think might like it too. Uh, if you have questions or comments um, or suggestions for future episodes, things you'd like to hear the show cover, um, or people you'd like to hear interviewed, or, uh, actually, I've gotten a number of these now, and I'd love to get some more. If there's a, a, a poem, especially sort of an, um, an underappreciated poem that you want to share, please uh, send any and all of this to sleericketts at gmail.com. That's S-L-E-E-R-I-C-K-E-T-S at gmail.com. A uh, quick note, I, I meant to mention this last week, but I, I found out recently that for a while, the uh, the website contact form was not actually linked to any email account. And so all of the messages were just getting dumped into the void. I know there were some that I missed. Uh, if you wrote me through the email contact form on the, on the website, if you wrote me and I did not write you back, that is because I did not get your message. So... Um, uh, Please, please, you know, send another one and I will respond. Uh, sorry about that. And thank you for listening. With any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. <laughs>